Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. All right, that was. The, oh, we'll see. We'll, we might leave that in the podcast. I feel good. Happy New Year, Brent. Happy New Year. It is. What year is it? Uh, 2020, Alan. <laughs> I'm going to reach across the table <laughs> and I will kill you until you're dead. Hey, public service announcement. PSA. I don't know if you have. Uh, seen this it's all over everything but in in the year 2020 yes if you are dating anything official it is advised for you to spell out the entire year okay okay you have not heard this no, but I, okay. I, I I always spell out the whole year because I know people are dumb and will get confused. Or and, computers are dumb and get confused. And the reason the why... Other. Please tell me why. Is because it is 2020. Yes, it is. If you just write 20, oh, someone can put... 18, 18, 17, or 21. 49, or... Which could have, depending on what you're dating, could have negative consequences to the dator, dater, dater, the guy writing so the So is this only on dating apps like or everywhere? Like uh, like like Plenty of Fish, Tinder. Right. Tinder, that's the one I, I was trying to load. No, so the the so, feedback is was was specifically first on checks or or contracts. Um, you're Who writes you know, checks? Chronologically anymore? I'm older than you, but come on. It's 2020. Stop writing checks. It wasn't my feedback. That's how I'm passing it on. I am the middleman. Yeah. I, anyway, I, 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 public I, service announcement for 2020. That, that Don't write just 20. Okay, great. This is an educational podcast. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so either I'm going to have some wonderful rants or I'm going to have to edit everything I say because it will not make any sense. Uh, let me see. Up, Our first five-minute very, very quickly, who was your, how was your holiday? Who was your holiday? My holiday was Brad Pitt. How was your holiday? We'll see. My holiday was honestly fantastic. It, um, the only problem with it, it was probably three, four months too short. The, I get you. But my son from college came to visit. I learned a, a fantastic strategy. He's now 21, so it was kind of cool to be sitting uh, drinking with your oldest kid. But uh, a new strategy was when he came here, he didn't have an available car, so he had to hang out with his poor parents. And turns out uh, we did a lot of things that we as a family hadn't done in a long time. We had one day where we just went through our game closet and went board game after board game after board game. Oh, that sounds fun. It was fun. Um, I, my, my family is now firmly re-addicted to Catan. Oh, we played, that's the one game we played over break, over the holiday. Was it? We played Catan, yeah. Um, I won. Okay. That's it. I'm I'm, I'm a winner. (laughs) And let's see. 
so I now am out of single-digit children. My daughter, her birthday's on New Year's Eve, uh, so she turned 10, and I now have only one minor-aged uh, children. Uh, my my middle son turned 18 last night. God. Oh, God. God, um, help us all. Yes. <laughs> How about you? I, I didn't do I, I didn't do much. It, it I just kind of hung out, which was great. It was great to sleep in and not have meetings with Europe. I like my meetings with Europe, but it was good to take a break for a little bit. I have a whole crap ton of travel coming up. I'm leaving end of the month, like the week of delivery conf. Sorry, Lisa. Sorry, Abby. I'll be in London for nine days. I come back for like three days, and I go to California for a week. And then I come back for a week or two, and then I go skiing in Whistler, vacation. And then I come back for a couple of weeks, and then I go to Helsinki for a week, and then I come back, and I, and I try and keep it all together. Yeah, I may need to apologize to Lisa as well. I have to go look at what the schedule is for that delivery conf, because I think it's aligned with the three-day weekend. It is. Do you, oh, does Microsoft get that day off? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, one thing, one difference in Unity is I couldn't go a whole podcast without talking about it. A lot more like regular days off. But I can't imagine, I have to look, because I can't imagine that they scheduled the whole conference overlapping with that weekend. I think it's during the week. No, it's during the week. It's it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I, I think it's, I can't remember now. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so I'm not yet prepared to apologize to Lisa, but uh, definitely won't be available that Monday. <laughs> All right. Shall we try doing a podcast? No. You okay. know what? After, Thank you. after that, 113, you know, at some point in time, we should just give up. Yeah. Remember, you've only done 112. Oh, okay. That's true. <laughs> so maybe if I get the, to the next one, it'll Okay. Work. You have proposed a topic that is very interesting. Can you please kick it off and let me know how I can help you be successful in sharing this topic and your wonderful insights with our listeners? Yeah, you can start by uh, lowering the expectation bar a great deal. <laughs> Lowered expectations. So I discovered something last week. You did. And I found it surprising. And I have... This could go anywhere from here. Hold on to your seats, folks. Yeah, let me... Before I announce what is in your my hands. Again, this could go anywhere from here. <laughs> let me let me read a conclusion paragraph uh, very quickly. This is a large paper written by someone that I think every one of our listeners knows, at least by name. Conclusions. Many members of the testing community's current vision of testing looks a lot like what I learned in school in the 1970s. For example, take a look at the ISEB practitioner syllabus. British community. I'm going to ignore that crap. Citation. Yeah, citation. The 1960s and 1970s were a different time. Programming was linear, programs were shorter, much shorter. Yeah, they were. 1970s, right? I remember when the Timex Sinclair with a total of 8K of memory came out. 
Development was often done by outside companies, and even if programming was done in-house, testing, if it was done with any formality, was often farmed out. Ideas that worked well for that context don't necessarily stretch well to other contexts. Amen, bros. Professional software development has become much more varied. XP and test-driven development offer a different vision of the relationship between testers and programmers. Even more traditional projects demand better user interfaces, better usability, not just pretty screens. With better quarter, uh, in better quarter coordination among the staff, the, the larger programs make prioritization, automation more even more urgent, and component-based development, which allows programmers to sew together large products much more quickly, puts a dis. dis- Proportionate burden on testing. With the paradigmatic changes in development, we need shifts in testing as well. This paper doesn't spell out all the important shifts, but it does open many of the established ideas up for consideration. The tone of this paper has been sharply critical of the traditional ideas. Please understand that I'm writing sharply to make a point. Most of these ideas apply perfectly well in some contexts. What I'm doing here is challenging you to think about the, the context you are in, set aside pre-existing assumptions, and think through what crafting culture of testing will actually work best where you are or where you want to become. Now, Alan knows who wrote this. Have you seen this before? I, well, I mean, not before last week. Okay. I'll tell you what. I think I remember when this paper was published, but based on the author and my experience both reading and interacting with the author of this, I dismissed it without reading it. Knowing the author and hearing the conclusions, your thoughts, initial thoughts, like your emotional... I've, I've changed my opinion. I have such a sour experience with this person that it was hard to read and, and get past it. But but now that I've skimmed it and you've read the conclusion to me, I do need to try and change my opinions. I'm not even sure what this person is doing today. I haven't heard from them in years. But yeah, this, paper, this paper is, to be clear, is from what year, Brent? 2004. 2004. 2004. Six, 16 years ago. Uh, dispels a lot of myths. Definitely saw things like modern testing on the horizon. Definitely was able to see XP for what it was, for how it is, and agile techniques, agile approaches, for how they can improve software quality. Whereas some contemporary peers of this author have made fun of and dismissed a lot of things from agile. I think I this is a paraphrase, but I've even heard one of his peers, and I'll give you the name in a minute so I don't give this away. It's like a surprise. Of course, our three listeners already have read They gave us the paper, so they've heard it. So this is all BS. No, I found the paper. Oh, you did? Yeah, I'm, I'm the one that posted on Slack. Okay, well, they've, yeah. all, they've all read it now, so this is all. I can't remember the comment now. Something like, like Agile hates testing or something stupid like that. Anyway, my opinion has changed. Good paper, interesting. I, it's hard for me as I read it and skim through it while you're talking to imagine this author writing this paper. So uh, do you want to give it away? Do you have more stuff? What, what were your reactions when you read it before we uh, talk about the author? More succinctly, 
I was pleasantly shocked. <laughs> uh, and on two fronts. Number one, so my interaction with this with with this author um, has always been indirect. Right? You and I are both good friends with uh, a person who used to be a, a direct coworker. And this guy's first book, and I, I've, I've talked about it on the podcast, um, back when I was a traditional test, uh, test manager, I bought hordes of these books. See, there's the difference between you and I. Even when I first read this book, probably in 1999, I thought it was dated and, and didn't make and was irrelevant then. So I first read the book... 95, 96. Okay. And I was first moved into test management in 97 or 98. You didn't hear the punchline. No. The way I use this book is with new hires, I gave them two weeks to read the book. And because testing still wasn't taught in school, it's still really not today. And I, what I wanted to do, as we all agree, testing is a critical thinking process. So what I wanted them to do is I wanted to first read the book, and in two weeks, uh, our 101, they're going to walk me through uh, what they picked up from it. Okay? And when they did that, I would give them a new assignment. And I would say, great. Now what I want you to do is read the book again. They would look at me like, are you an ass? Read the book again, and I want you to come back and tell me every place this book is wrong. So I used testing computer software by Kim Kaner to test the book testing computer software by Kim Kaner. Because that, that book came out in 88? It did. So in the 16 years since writing that book and he even went back and the original edition of the book said the the purpose of testing is to find bugs he went back and changed that in a later edition no he said even worse a test that does not find a bug is a waste of time literal quote in first edition he did change in in later (laughs) he did change that but this is uh, he rebuts most of the points in the book in this paper Uh, yeah he calls out a lot of statements that he made that have been made about testing as myths. Uh, he's got a long list of things that we've been still talking about. Like you and I have said over and over again, modern testing is not very much about m- testing and is most definitely not modern. Right? This paper was written in 2004, and I see it. Even before we were talking about modern testing. Even before we, e- even before we even had a before podcast. Even before we met. Time, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know there was a person named Alan Page in 2004, right? Um, and how your life has changed since then. Yes. I find this paper fascinating. Like, he even has, so I, I'm thinking we go through, I just want to just comment further on this. One of the the, the three where, where I, I may have made a comment around, oh, my God, I see a ton of modern testing stuff in here, right? Is the primary reason of testifying bugs, 
No. <laughs> right? But then he lists out, is it define defects or maximize bug count or block premature product releases, help managers ship? This is listed in the paper as things that um, are typical reasons, but not primary. Uh, maximize technical or minimize technical support costs. The next section. There's something you want to say there? No. Okay. I, I'm afraid. Don't, don't make a make a point, man. Uh, I'm trying to. I know. Is the main reason to test to prove the program works correctly? No. Right. I find this paper shocking, as I mentioned, because it's because of where it came from. And how old it is. It is very interesting. So I'm going to, uh, I'll give a few comments, but I think it's probably worthwhile to share my Kim Keener interaction story. Okay. Because despite the fact I like this paper, the way he re, we had a, we had an email interchange once and it was very interesting. Uh, this was probably around the time this paper was actually probably exactly around the time this paper was written. So it makes it interesting. It was the time when, all Bach talked about, James Bach, was exploratory testing and how it was this special thing. And if you could do exploratory testing, you were a special person, which is actually called out in this paper. It says it's not just something experts can do. It's critical thinking. I forget the exact words that yes. Keener used. Anyway, it was, it was Bach was going off all the time about how special it was. So I wrote a blog post, something about testing and I said something to the effect of, this could be the exact quote, and our teams do exploratory testing. And then in parentheses, as I do, can I even use that term that way anymore? Can I even use that term anymore without crediting people or something like that? Just some, <laughs> just, you know, a little, a little passive aggressive blurb, not, it shouldn't really cause offense. Kem Kaner emailed me and said, I don't know. I don't know you or what I've ever done to anger you, Mr. Weasel, but I find this completely disrespectful and blah, 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 and just kind of went off on me. And I, I swear to God, it was the only phrase was, am I allowed to use that word, that phrase? And he was pissed off no, no, to no end. But I, I think I understand why. This was, when did... Whitaker's tours book come out much later. Was it later? Yes. Are you sure? Positive, because he and I talked about that book on the soccer field. We used to uh, place uh, kick the ball around once a week for about an hour and just kind of BS back okay. and forth. And that that was in God. You know what? As I look back, no, it was later. It wasn't. I was in. I was. The director in engineering excellence, which I didn't start till 2007. So I think Whitaker's Tours book came out in 2008 or 2009. Right, but you remember the name of that book? Exploratory testing. Yes, but it w wasn't out yet. It wasn't even Whitaker hadn't even thought of it yet. Yeah. The, so the thing I know from talking with Whitaker at that point in time. Oh, did he piss off a whole bunch of people oh, by, I know. He, by publishing it under that title? He did that book just to piss off people. That was his thing. So anyway, Kaner, so it was such an overreaction. And then 
later to have our good friend James tell us all kinds of stories about Cam. Uh, it soured my view of him. But this probably came out, and I, I don't know if I saw it when it came out, but it was definitely after his odd email rant to me. Uh, I might have that email somewhere, but so if if you if you and I were far more sensitive, I guess that's the best word I can think of. If you and I were far I'm, more sensitive, I'm, I'm very sensitive. And someone released a set of waterfall traditional testing principles under the name of modern testing we would probably get pissed too. You know what, though? The good, the good news is we wouldn't have to because our community would go to bat for us because they're awesome. Right, right. Um, but if, if we didn't do something, then the community may lose confidence, right? We had to lead by example on some of these I don't things. know. Honestly, I don't think I'd, I, I would chalk it. I mean, I, I would chalk the, it up as stupid. I think the biggest thing is, is that we're not sensitive (laughs) (laughs) and and i obviously haven't spent enough time inside of your head uh but in my own right i think a better idea than modern testing should win yes my whole goal is to continue and push forward objective communication on the topic. I don't care if people disagree. Um, not, not, uh, there's a lot of people, particularly in the Twitterverse, that are very interested in amping the drama level on modern testing to, to 13. And you're like, we want a debate. One must win. It's a sort of a Highlander. And I'm like, yeah. You know yeah, what? There, there was somebody, <laughs> you probably remember this, there was somebody, um, this was Six months ago, maybe longer. Yep. Someone like tagged Bach and said, "I'd love to hear your thoughts on the modern testing principles." <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, and of course, I just replied and said to all, including James, because James and I have a is much as we disagree, we have sort of a Twitter truce. Yeah, I was to say it's a it's an unwritten truce. We ha- we have sort of a truce going on. Someone just wanted. Anyway, I replied and said they're not that modern. They're not about testing, but you're welcome to take a look. I'm still pissed off about the automation paper. Anyway, go on. Yeah, that's one where you were misquoted, if I recall correctly. Well, I was misattributed. Yeah. What we see in this paper are a lot of statements around what testers maybe traditionally were thought of doing. And then underneath that, paragraphs and paragraphs talking about how this really isn't true anymore especially or or how it really isn't true well so not entirely but you can see you can see the formation of even from from someone who i would say um i would honestly say was a contributor to maybe not the bible but several of chapters of the bible of traditional testing so for example here um, under a section called testers and programmers have conflicting interests, blah, 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 words. Then he says, over the longer term, uh, a better approach is often to refuse to play. A test group can stick to and publicize its role as the, as the tick 
technical information provider, right? Something. Well, we're I, we're back to that information testing as information provider, which I don't. Right, like. but this is dated two thousand and four. I get it. I get it. Right. I don't know where he would be on that topic today, and it's something that obviously you and I don't agree with. Um, um, should test group work independently of the programmers? Um, no. How many? It's interesting because in this section, uh, the way I would interpret the first part of it is he's like, uh, maybe. But then he closes the whole thing uh, being heavily supportive of TDD. I saw um, – I'm going to tangent off here because we can look at how little the test world has progressed since then in some ways. Uh, and we've talked about, at least I've talked about, looking at where testing is on a cost of innovation curve. There are probably things more modern than modern testing out there in the early adopters. Modern testing is somewhere out towards the front end of that. There's still people doing the old Microsoft thing of lots of S-sets testing the crap out of the code. And there are still people who, the independent testing doesn't connect to devs. They write bug reports against requirements. And there's a whole bunch of the industry back there. And there are people trying to cross the chasm, but doing it in odd ways. I saw a Twitter conversation, I think it was Twitter, around should testers learn TDD? And there were a lot of people arguing, absolutely, it's the best way for testers to write unit tests. And why? Why are the testers writing unit tests? So tangent reversal, so come back to the paper. What I like and what sets Cam apart from his peers is he's non-dismissive of new approaches of software development. What I like is he's, he looked at XP and looked at some things from Agile and, and said, you know, applied proper critical thinking and figured out how those could benefit testing and software quality, which is fantastic. Whereas some of his contemporaries have dismissed those things. So I give him full props for that, for actually learning and growing and not digging his heels in on the things that are more relevant to him. And I wonder if, you know, this was maybe some of the basis of the, I can't remember when the Bach and Kaner fallout happened, but... It might have been around here. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It could could have been for completely different reasons. Go on. What other things would you like to highlight from this paper? I'm going to need now remember to put a link to this paper <laughs> in the damn show notes, and I will most likely forget. Luckily, it's you can already use your, in the Slack channel. You, or you can use your favorite search engine to look for it. What's it called? No, the best way to do it. The ongoing revolution in software testing. There we go. No link needed. Uh, I think there's a... a a lot of interesting quotes in here. For example, the one I just highlighted. Remarkably, many testers still push the traditional waterfall method. I don't understand why. <laughs> right? They And a big part of this to me, uh, just quite honestly, uh, number one, I do not understand how this paper has escaped my notice until literally just a few weeks ago. And although when this paper came out, 2004, no, I think I was in Bing by that time. 
Yeah, I'm trying to judge which when this paper came out, which side of the the agile fence I was on. I was no, that was early. I was still in Windows CE. I joined uh, Engineering Excellence in 2005. No, yes. 2005. I did a little 10-year recap at the end of the year blog post, and I realized that 10 years ago, I was still in engineering excellence. Holy crap. Times have changed. I want to go back to your statement, because it reminds me, I'm going to reiterate a rant that I've, I've done before on this podcast, is I don't understand. There are testers that not only, they may not say they embrace waterfall, but they love being isolated from development. They sit and they write their frickin' selenium tests all day long, and they feel like that's doing a good thing for the product. Holy crap, that's wrong. Anyway, go on. Here's another section I enjoy. It's somewhat relevant. James Buck and I have been working with exploratory testing throughout our careers. I coined the phrase in 1984, published it in uh, his book, with a strong recommendation that testers should run exploratory tests in every cycle of testing. Since then, I've come to realize that, in practice, good tests explore all the t- or good testers explore all of the time. More, 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 more word words. Be willing to change what you do to follow up what you're seeing as a test is the mark of a thoughtful tester. And the thing I think is the most important thing, and I think this paper shows that Cam was was living by that mantra, is you have to be willing to learn, have to be willing to be thoughtful and evaluate the best way to go um, to B from A and show a willingness to change. And I think that's also an underlying, I don't want to take this and blow it up too big, but... I think it's an important theme even in modern testing. The the whole point of of this is times change, value propositions change, skill sets get automated. Hell, uh, I don't know if I've yet said it on the podcast, but I've already at a point where I truly believe that we're at the beginning of the end of the of the 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 fad portion of data science where we get a big large bulk of people coming in and everyone's trying to ramp up my son uh, just finished an initial part of going through and applying to schools and he's keenly interested in uh, pursuing data science can you guess why well, probably not because his dad does data science, but there are lots of jobs for data scientists. No, it's actually because you had that a hundred percent backwards. Oh, hundred percent. He wants to do what dad does because dad's no. job looks fun. What he wants, what he wants to do, it's even less thoughtless than that. It's what he wants is to maintain his standard of living, and he knows. That if he gets a job with the same title as dad, he doesn't even know what the damn do- job is. Okay. Oh, uh, he just knows dad makes coin. Yeah, maybe. He knows we're, we're, we're an upper middle class family, and 
he knows that that amount of money is enough to. He's also very analytically aligned, so he's very he's a very mathy kid. But uh, I sat down with him. I'm like, you know what? I don't think you should do that. I think actually computer science is a much better way to go, and look for a school that will offer a minimum of a minor or at least a computer science curriculum is a data science one. Um, yesterday, I had a mentee, or not a mentee, one of my employees. He came in. Uh, he has his PhD in operations research. And one of the things he brought up, he's only been here five months, and he's he, he realized that in this environment, He's not as autonomous as he'd like, and that's because he doesn't have the coding background. And he said, hey, as a PhD, I've already looked up at UW, and I realize uh, I could get in for a, a master's program in computer science with very little friction. He's already got his PhD. They're not going to ask him for GMAT or GRE uh, or any of that crap. And... He and I looked at the curriculum in the master's program at uh, UW. I would say a good 40% are not only data science classes, hmm. but specific ones. Right? They have a whole course on NLP, which is not something you would, tradi- or you would traditionally see from a computer science course. No. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I think actually the next set of developers coming out of college five years from now, uh, they're going to be the dominant workforce. Good. And they're going to be excellent at modern testing principle number five, six. Yeah. 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 Hey, so there's one point I wanted to, and just to show how this is 2004, just to show how relevant this is, there's a section on, uh, the statement is we can measure the individual effectiveness, effectiveness of testers by counting how many bugs they enter, which is interesting because he he gives an uh, example we've probably given on this podcast before. There's two testers. One finds 100 bugs. One finds 10 bugs. Which one is better? He says, whoa, 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 slow down there. What if the person that finds 10 bugs is working with developers to uh, make sure they're writing more testable code and finding and, and things that still get reported, which is a statement we've made for probably since the second episode of this podcast. What's interesting is here we are 16 years later, and Ministry of Test had a post two weeks ago where they asked, how do you measure how, how, do you measure how well your test team's doing? And someone, I thought it was a troll, but they were serious. Or maybe they were a really good troll. I can't remember now. Uh, said, well, if I have two testers, I it should be like sales. I, I keep the one that finds the most bugs and show the other one the door. And luckily, there were, there were an, way more people disagreeing with this person in this conversation than we're going, yeah, that's the way it should be. So we're, we're kind of past that, but... It's weird that those things come up, and I bet, uh, I bet there are teams where bug counts are, or bug quotas are the thing. I had a bug quota when I started at Microsoft, nineteen ninety five. I've told this story before. I was expected to find ten bugs a week, and what I would do then, the behavior that drove was, I found, I found always like fourteen every week because I like to overachieve a little. But some weeks I'd find twenty. 
but I keep those extra six in my back pocket for the next week because I didn't know if my well was going to dry up. You get what you measure, right? Yeah. Never a good idea, but hell. Oh, my God, does that bring back memories. I was making 20 bucks an hour, and, man, I, I was loving life. I did exactly the same strategy you did, except um, whatever their min bar goal, I made sure I always doubled it on a weekly basis. And, man, did they get bugs. Yeah. Right? I, I would... One of the great ways for me to fulfill my quota is go look for grammar mistakes in the help documentation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're uh, missing a comma. You need a comma. I'm like, oh, my God. So let's bring this forward to 2020 in the conversation I had last week with a non-Microsoft, non-Unity employee. We're talking about metrics. Is what do you measure? And I mentioned the accelerator metrics. And the question was, I forget, it was a word I haven't probably heard since I read Kaner's book or maybe before. He asked, what's your defect insertion rate or something? Creation De- rate. Defect creation you, rate. You, you posted this on I Twitter. Did. I did. because, and, and my answer was, I can create a bug in Jira in under five minutes. What do you mean? <laughs> he goes, you know, how many bugs come in? I was like, oh, I don't know because we don't, we don't really track bugs. We just fix them as they happen. We have one, except for one exception, we have a slow trickle of bugs that comes in through our enterprise support we have for our organization that we enter. Usually they're SDK things and usually only a half dozen we're working on at once. Uh, and they're usually done within two weeks. Uh, so, but that's it. So I don't know how to count defect creation rate. But the fact that that was suggested made me think, oh my God, this is still... Counting bugs as a metric is still a thing people care about. I don't under, even understand the, pro- the proxy is. that is for co- for quality. Even even in a lot of uh, like you and I talked about it. I don't know recently. I don't even remember if it was on the podcast. We it was a conversation around incident rate. I and my board uh, using Kanban. Right, I I call bugs swarms. I don't have a bug database. Right, the the naming of of the way they ask you, what's your bug creation rate? Right, and like, how fast do your devs create bugs? <laughs> right, which is I believe where it's coming from. Not how fast do people file bugs? And the way I think of it now, particularly with a Kanban system, is I go okay. What is my what's the rate of my inbound queue, and am I burning that down? Am I making it harder to to construct customer impacting issues that we call them swarm tickets in my team? Um, yep, I've, I've I've I have seen your concept of Kanban boards and know what the swarm swim lane is for. Yes, we hate that board. We hate that lane. Because it's the only thing that interrupts us. <laughs> As it should. As it should. And so that puts a focus on reducing the interruptions. Like It's interesting. That person's question, if he had asked me, I would have used it to shift it from the traditional bullshit um, way of thinking to, oh, I think you mean this, and I probably would have even played dumb uh, and, and just no, shifted no. it to how how. So the conversation works. was around. I was uh, brainstorming out, so I was like, "Here are the things I here's what I measure: accelerate metrics, um, some of the 
server health metrics. These are the things I, I, I watch and care about. So what else do you think I should do? And this came up. Um, and then they just started telling me a bunch of things I should do, not things I should measure, which was weird. Anyway. but uh, You know but, what, but, but, though? That's common. It's con- yeah. it's depressingly common, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I asked for one thing, got another. Anyway, in talking about this, this paper we'll recommend and read, we should do uh, our next book report, or at least worth uh, half a podcast in talking about, is did you read the latest State of DevOps report? This is the one put together by Nicole Forsgren and gang. Uh, it's based on a, lo- a large amount of survey and some interpretation. Um, one of the interpretations they did... I know I've read one. I don't know if it's the latest. So when did it come out? A month ago? Two months ago? No, probably not. Two then. months ago? Three months ago? Not that long ago. But anyway, I'll send you a link, and I'll remember to put one in the damn show notes. I'm going to suck. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is I use those a lot, and I'm preparing... I have this presentation I put together, and I'm presenting the Accelerate metrics because I know they've been studied, and I can use those to... Uh, I can use the research to make add some validity to the numbers but you need you, you want to bootstrap with something that's credible and yes. then you'll you'll yeah. add then i have other flavor to add but anyway yep. one thing they've done in that paper nicole and i don't i think she did most of the work on it is sort of maturity modeled although nicole hates maturity models maybe even more than i do the metrics like the accelerate metrics like where you should be on things and there's good news and bad news and I'll, I'll forget the number, so I won't quote them, is my team, my organization is at the elite level in everything. We're not good enough. That those le- I was going to say. They're, 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 the elite level is very lenient. The one, the one I thought would be close on is the failure rate. So I looked at uh, uh, incidents or, or issues that happen in production per deployment. And it says one to five percent, and I look, and we're f- way under one percent. So, which I think is still a lot. If you're at one percent, one of every hundred deployments causes something bad to happen. That's horrible. Now, so therein lies an opportunity. We can have a whole the, podcast about. I just I was just no, thinking about that because this this segued into you know 2014. 2019 state of DevOps. So, 20, sorry, 2004 to the 2019 state of DevOps. So the first thing I want to I want to say regarding this paper is, is in some regards the Caner paper. We're, the Caner paper. Okay. It's depressing. And I because because it's been 16 years and so much of the industry is still and pre- this paper is still relevant. Well, no, this, this paper, paper can be shipped to people and they would go they would still have the same argument. You know what? Um, do you know how do you know how What do you mean we shouldn't have a bug tracking system? Which me, by the way, let, he says no. Let me finish. <laughs> yeah. Let me finish. So, a couple years ago, every year on 4th of July, uh, for the US listeners that's a Independence Day holiday, um, everyone else it's our Independence Day holiday, NPR, our National Public Radio, publish it, they tweet the Declaration of Independence. Okay. And not as much anymore because they caught themselves. But the first year this happened, a bunch of Trump supporters were going off on Twitter because they thought this whole thing was just, they didn't realize Declaration of Independence. They thought it was all NPR making jabs at the president. Okay. So uh, I wonder if I were to take select quotes from this and tweet them, 
how many people would disagree and tell me I was full of shit? I'm asking you this now because that's what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> Before this podcast comes out. I am going to take some choice quotes from this and I'm going to troll the internet and see what happens. The challenge here no, is, of course... The thing I really would want to see... There is a challenge, and you can finish that. The challenge yeah. is all the people that hate me for all my shit and going against your exploratory testing, and oh my God, there is nothing better in life than writing selenium tests all day. They've already stopped following and or blocked me already. But I'll see who's left because there's always somebody. Oh, like the person when I said, when Ministry of Testing tweeted, testing is dot, dot, dot. And I wrote, accelerating the achievement of equality. And someone replied back, testing does nothing to accelerate the team. And fun happened from there. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually. Anyway, what, 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 is there a special... I'll talk with you off the podcast. Because <laughs> this will all happen. There's before... a whole lot of fun that you, <laughs> the, the, the uh, fun possibilities based on what you just said. But oh, going back to yeah. the, going back to the Nicole thing, and I, and I, this will be my final thought on this one, or on it's this the this final podcast. Thought. Um. Like the state of DevOps and and the 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 KPI that you're thinking of of rolling out and how you're going to do that, right? You mentioned by her standard, you're in the, the the elite class. So great. Unfortunately, as you called out, uh, that means uh, you may not necessarily be able to to leverage much from the coal to move into the super elite. No, I, I can define right? my own levels. The metrics that are in Accelerate are still highly valid. I still want to use them. I just have higher standards than the elite level. No, what I'm saying, actually, because you're, tr you're now going into something that she hasn't documented, I think there's an opportunity there to create a collaboration connection with... Uh, Nicole. I hope so. All right. Yeah. And actually, I lied because there was one thing as I was looking at you and realizing where you work. There's something that I do also. Could it, could it, be, it could be because of my Unity hoodie I'm wearing it right now? It might have been. Are you aware of the communication, the, the recent controversy with the Communications Workers Union? No, I am not. Okay. I'm not aware of the recent controversies with the communications something union. In California, they are working to unionize game developers. Oh, I have heard about this. The game and testers. Game developers. Game developers. Interesting. And I haven't heard about it. This there's, is there's always some, because of the way the game companies treat testers, game QA, Frequently, I hear rumblings of testers, game testers wanting to unionize, but I hadn't heard about developers. Anyway, continue. I think it might be something worth discussing between the two of us on this, because one of the things I realized is knowledge work is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. Yes. Like a lot of the, the blue-collar work is being automated away, um, and... I'm actually, it's, it's not the prediction episode, but I'm actually thinking there is a non-trivial chance that in next 10 years, that could that could unionize. I'll, well, I'll 
as long as it never hits me, I'll retire. Have you ever have you ever worked in a union? I have. I have also. The, and the experience a, was the experience was not good. Yeah, I worked in a union. I think it would be a horrible thing long term for uh, the people and the society. Quite honestly. Yep. But I think in the short term, it might much like labor unions did in the short term. I, uh, I think it might be a good thing. Uh, so here's one of the things that unions do. If nothing else, if the unionized and this stuck and then we got rid of the union, I'd be for unionization. Gets rid of this hyper-competitive heroism bullshit. Uh, a buddy of mine works at Salesforce. Everyone knows what their bonus is going to be. And it, it, there's, there's, no, there's no behavior at Salesforce where you're trying to Look, I don't have to be good. I just have to be better than Alan because that relative that, stack system. The, the hyper-competitiveness is very much a Microsoft thing, I think. I mean, that's my experience. My experience at Microsoft is, man, when you get to May, people are sucking up and putting others down and trying to make themselves look good for – at the risk and pain to customers, at the risk and pain to each other, at the risk and pain of mental health, it is, it's horrid. Did you read Whitaker's Why I Left Microsoft Again? I, I, no, I didn't. Nutshell, he says that culture is changing. It's the right direction. Not going fast enough. I'm going to go someplace else. Oh, that's what I said when I left. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Screw him. Um, the... And all of that's true. But what was frustrated him further is he, he knew why it wasn't going fast enough. And that is because all of the hippos at the company that have been here oh, 30 years. Oh, you know what? Years, Maybe I did see that. that. That's all absolutely true. If you look at you know Windows, which is... even though Maybe it's getting better now that it's part of Azure, which is still weird. But that whole... That it whole is. it's just a just a old it's a it's a frat club for fifty year olds as the leadership of Windows. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm trying to come up with a way to classify this uh, because I am in the fifty year old club, and next maybe episode one sixteen uh, on February sixth. It's my twenty fifth here. But yet, I share no kinship with these folks. These folks that have have decided that uh, there is no reason to change, right? Unless it's forced upon me. Absolutely. And, and there were in the and we can go on a little bit here, but well, what a tangent! In the the nineties and the early two thousands, there was still so much turnover. People uh, weren't staying at Microsoft a long time, but somewhere in there people started staying at Microsoft longer and longer, and they stopped learning. And 10 years ago, uh, James and a friend of ours uh, were at lunch, and James takes credit for this, but it was actually Dan who first said this. He said, everybody at a certain level and above should have to go out, and every two years they have to get a job offer from another company in order to keep their job here, make sure they're staying relevant. And there is a reason they're staying here, some of those – 
partner level folks and many of those partner level folks and many of our executives, the reason they're staying at Microsoft is because they cannot get an equal paying job or an equal prestige job anywhere else in the industry because they're irrelevant to every other company besides Microsoft. Well, that's part of it. The other thing, too, is Microsoft has put into place for a long time strategies to retain those type of folks. Yeah, but right? maybe that's the wrong thing. But it's fine to retain them if they continue to learn and grow, but you can look at the and, and I'll I'll call out names, Michael Fortin, the stagnant of there. Like, talk about someone stuck in 1990 and being totally happy with it. There's an example. I have not. I, I don't know if he's still around anymore. He is. Terry I, Myerson, his boss, same thing. Terry's not yeah, around anymore. I know. I know. Yeah. God. Um, I have you not. You can't imagine. And just the pain of being in a meeting like with Terry Myerson there and just going, oh, my God, you're running this ship Oh, anyway, names dropped. Doesn't matter. I left three years ago, almost exactly. I had an interaction. So uh, you mentioned Windows is is part of Azure. They are. And uh, as you know, because you were still here when they formed it, I believe, uh, Windows' response to the removal of tests was to put them all into a an organization they called Quality and then take what seemingly a random 50% of those same folks and change their title. You know, odds you get a title developer, evens you get a title data scientist and just rotate through. Draw straws. (laughs) I was there for that. Um, And, and, oh, and by the way, this is going to happen and we're going to give you no direction. Go figure it out on your own. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad idea. However, no, even worse, it's a bad idea executed poorly. Poorly. However, that was many years ago. It was. Well, it was about six years ago. Yes, and five years ago, um, somewhere in there. They have hired in. Uh, for example, there is a one of those data science teams. Uh, they hired in a partner level data scientist manager. Uh, who now has been at the company for a year. But before that, he was at HP. And he and I, it's funny, he and I went and had coffee, and he's like, Brent, can I just talk to you? He's German, and Germans like to be blunt. I mean, he's from Germany. And he's like, can I just have a a straight conversation? I'm like, sure, of course. (laughs) And he's like, WTF this company? And I'm like, Dude, you're in the middle of Windows. It's not this company. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's one thing to be clear on. My yeah. my rant is dedicated there. Uh, I do talk about there are some bright spots. There, there, that, there's bright spots, um, but, but there's still a struggle. To, to rewind it, it's just it's tough because it's tough to everyone's focused on getting promoted. People are more focused on getting promoted than probably anything that benefits the customer. Well, if you remember, you remember the lesson of the, the monkey's experiment. Yes. Sometimes people are doing things because that's how it's always been done, and they right. don't know. it. Uh, a, a, a great example, that same team. So I have uh, AI actually running in production, and uh, customers. Uh, it's customer-facing. It's something I shipped about six months ago. They have a, a similar technology, this, this, this one team I'm thinking of. 
and I said, okay, uh, let's meet and let's run your model against my data and see which one's better. I still host it. If yours is better, I'll ship it. We started this about three months ago. They haven't finished writing the proposal document so that they could get the approval to do a four-hour freaking experiment to see if they have something better. And I'm like, oh, right. <sighs> Bureaucracy of Windows. Yes. So one, <laughs> one final, final, final thing that I really have to go. Fair enough. Is another thing we could potentially talk about in the future, but I'll bring it up shortly now, is you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, at some point, I was working a lot with, 10 years ago, with uh, Nachi Nagatapan, who, uh, you, mm-hmm. know, you know Nachi. I do. And always did research on really relevant stuff, and he's good with statistics, really, really fantastic human. And there was uh, some talk last week, because someone wrote a bot at Microsoft, someone at Microsoft wrote a bot based on his research to uh, walk code and predict defects, and, and one of the things they found had the highest correlation, or the highest recall, was organizational structure. And the internet went, oh my God, this is so cool. And, but the, uh, the thing I would like to point out with that research, and I think you'll head nod here, is uh, at Microsoft, that makes complete sense because organizational structure and who you report to and what org you report to is something people often look at before they'll even talk to you. So of course, it, the challenges in software and complexity come from communication. And there are communication breakdowns dependent on org that are highly specific or at least intensified at Microsoft. So I, I would anyway, have not it's, it's all part of the same podcast. Thing. And so, um, yeah, there, there are that particular study to my, to my knowledge, it hasn't. It, so you're aware of the repeatability crisis right now? Yes. Okay. That one, I think, hasn't passed the repeatability. It was intended to be sort of, hey, this is what we've learned. I did, I've did. i actually had meetings with Nachi, and one of the things he struggled with was trying to find a, a variety of different right. data it's sources right. that had sufficient data. And at that point in time, he needed a shit ton of data, and there was – only two yeah. groups who you right, go to right. for that. Right, right. The thing was, and again, granted, so, Nachi used Windows for the bulk of his research. Anyway, I would love to keep talking about it. We can keep, keep giving us your papers. We'll keep giving you bad book reports. Um, <laughs> so show notes, Caner paper, Santa DevOps, maybe even Nachi's paper, not his bot stuff, if I get that far. That's going to be a lot of work for me. I'll see if I can get that done. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we're going to see you next time. Happy New Year. 